Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. So, my dear listener, this is a very significant moment in my life. I've just this morning taken my youngest one to school for the first time. And honestly, I walked out with a pep in my step. I don't know if I was waiting to see if I would feel a bit weird, you know. Oh, my baby's starting school. And I was like, this is a milestone and I've achieved something and I'm happy about it. Uh, He went in a bit wobbly and then I could see through the window after I dropped him off. He was fine. And I feel like, yeah, okay. Fifth and final instalment of Jones Boy has started school. Great. What a moment. Um, And then in the nice juxtapositions that can happen in life, um, or I don't know if it's nice, just, you know, a contrast. Um, Last night, my eldest boy, Sonny, who's 19, told me he's just finished packing his first box, ready to move out. And... I don't know. It's obviously, I'm going to really miss having Sonny under my roof, but I do feel overwhelmingly that he's making the right move now. I think it's good for him and I think he's ready and I think he's excited. And I saw an Instagram post the other day and it said something like, parenthood is a series of goodbyes, you know, from womb to bring them home from hospital, from the cot at the side of the bed to their own room, from running away from me in the park to going to school. And at first I thought, oh, that's really sweet. And I thought, hang on a minute, I don't actually agree with that. I actually don't agree with that. It's not a series of goodbyes. It's a, it's just stages of growth. It's developing, it's evolving, it's moving together into new chapters. And I'm actually okay with that because the opposite of that is things not moving forward. So I'm all for it. It's okay. I think there's some... If you want to think like that, obviously that's fine. But I just choose not to. And I also don't feel it in my bones. And I think there's some slightly unhelpful rhetoric going on on the internet sometimes. Have you seen this stuff where it says, oh, you only have 18 summers with your kid or something? I'm like, that's just annoying. Don't be a sovereign to much pressure. Plus, Sonny, the 19-year-old, he came on holiday with us this summer. He didn't come on holiday last year or the one before. So what, am I now back to like... 17 summers. Also, my mum came on holiday with me this year. Is she up to, like, 19 summers, however many it's been? Probably, like, 37. I spend a lot of time with my mum. So I just think it's unhelpful. So don't be... If if you're seeing that stuff and it's making you feel under pressure to make every moment, like, the most, like, cherished, beautiful thing ever, don't worry about it. 
It's much more important, I think, to keep in step with your nearest and dearest, not just your kids, your other half if you have one, your friends, your family. Relationships need to be fed in the here and now and not just like, oh, do you remember when we were really close 10 years ago? You know, that's that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to evolve. Anyway, I think I'm feeling all of that stuff because I did have to drop off my kid at school and it's made me think about stuff and obviously... There's lots of other back-to-school stuff going on at the moment, but mainly I think growth is good. And if your kid's ready for it and if they're feeling like they're going to cope with it, then you know it's the right thing, right? Anyway, um, so today's guest. Oh, what a lovely woman. I'd know, I'd met Laura Dockrell very briefly. Um, we went to uh, the launch of a book of another previous podcast guest, the lovely Dawn O'Porter. So we'd met at Dawn's book launch and we had this really brief chat because I'd been following Laura on her Instagram and we had a few mutual friends and I'd also at that point read her book, What Have I Done? She's written lots of books, lots of works of fiction for young adults, for children. Uh, She's just written one for adults. But this was, uh, this is the first book she's written that was non-fiction about her, frankly, terrifying experience of postpartum psychosis. It's a read that knocked the wind out of me both when I read it then and when I reread it before I spoke to Laura but it's also I think for me the magnitude of it is that postpartum psychosis affects one to two women in a thousand and there is nothing to say that that could not have been my experience of what happened to me you know and actually aspects of her descriptions of the beginnings of her feelings of slipping from reality to other feel very familiar you know when you're sleep deprived when you're if you're the other side of a traumatic birth these things can make you feel like you don't know quite which way is up and um I think that I could have easily slipped into those things you know who's to say there weren't hers breaths that meant I could have gone into different a different set of emotions for the beginning of my journey into new parenthood so Laura writes about it really well. Also, I think it's absolutely brilliant to break the taboo. You know, I'm sure everybody in their life, and it doesn't have to be related to parenthood at all, but everybody in their life might have a time where they feel they have just slipped below the radar. And actually, I suppose that harks back to what I was talking about with seeing the kids start school, the wheel turning... There's also times where you do feel you've stagnated or you've slipped into some other other aspect of life where everybody else is sort of moving forward in the normal trajectory and you're just not. This can happen for many, many reasons. You know, it could be um, circumstance, it could be illness, it could be injury, it could be something unexpected or something that just already tells you, oh, those milestones are not going to be the things that I hit because my life has gone in a different direction. And or, you know, someone you care about as life has. And I think when I had my first baby and I had preeclampsia and I was very ill and I had him two months early and he was in, you know, neonatal for weeks on end, months, um, I felt like I'd slipped into a chapter of the book that I didn't read, the parenting book, you know, you and your body for the first nine months. That didn't happen for me. I stopped at chapter seven. I never got to months eight and nine. And there was just a footnote at the bottom of the page saying, for some women, they might get these things. So for some women, they might get postpartum psychosis. That's the footnote. But for some women, 
they don't just it's not a footnote it becomes their whole experience so I'm so grateful to Laura for coming to speak to me she looks amazing she's wearing she came to me wearing this incredible flamboyant um co-ord outfit that I would really quite like to own for myself as well it's beautiful she had bright lipstick on she looks incredible sunny happy positive person but the story she told is of someone who's experienced something incredibly dark but also it's very powerful that she's able to speak about it because there'll be other women and in fact I have pressed her book into the hands of people that I think could maybe do with hearing about other you know what might be happening to them so yeah grateful to to Laura for sharing her experience grateful to the support around her that meant that that became something that she's the other side of um I'm very very grateful she came over to talk to me about it so I think uh aspects of this um chat might be a bit shocking uh I should say there's a trigger warning because there's talk about suicidal thoughts and very dark days and experiences but overwhelmingly there is a happy ending so yeah be braced but be reassured too it all ends up okay in the end and thank you to Laura for sharing it and I'll see you on the other side Laura, it's lovely to sit down with you. And you, Sophie. Thank you for coming in. Thank Firstly, you. for everybody listening in black and white, you look beautiful in all the colours you're wearing. Today. So do you, <laughs> and your incredible, charming house. We've gone pretty, both gone a bit maximalist today, which <laughs> thumbs up for me. <laughs> well, I want to speak to you first of all. What, what are you up to at the moment? What are your projects that you're working oh, on? thank you for asking. Well, I've got a new novel coming out in June, which I'm obviously biting my fingernails about, going through the crisis of confidence. One day I'm like, yes, the next minute. <laughs> Why am I doing this? This is your first adult adult novel, which is um, it's called I Love You, I Love You, I Love You, and it's a love story about it's about Hugo and I really, based on there's truth in the um, fiction of it. So we've been best mates since we were 14 years old, my partner and I, um, and then a couple of little kids plays, and then I've got a children's book coming out with Lauren Child which I'm super excited about because it's about depression, a picture book for kids, which is nobody ever talked to me about this when I was young. So it's something I really wanted to try and tackle, especially after my lived experience and to talk to Jet, I suppose, my little boy about what we went through and and to know also that this stuff is scary, but knowledge is power and recovery is so possible. Yeah. Um, And that was something I really wanted to, to write about for young people. I think that's a really important conversation because... I think depression is something that affects so many people and there's still some barriers to break down and particularly with kids, anything that's sort of like, the, I mean grey is a brilliant title, the greyer areas of life, the more you can bring them out into the light and talk about them, the way more you can diminish those bits, those corners where you think, oh, this is a fallen outside of what was expected and I don't really know exactly what that means for me. Totally. And I think also sh- the shame surrounding it. Like mm. there's still, it's still seen that we can't cope, you know, uh, shame, stress, anxiety, all these things. Um, and yet, as you say, it's a universal topic that affects us all and all we're doing by silencing it is actually inflaming the shame, making it harder to ask for help. Yeah. Um, and also, we're actually not helping ourselves because when you talk about it, all you hear is someone else go, well, I had that too, and then you chill. And you're like, oh, okay, this isn't something to be embarrassed about. Yeah. So it's kind of perpetuating. Yeah. Um, and the colour grey is obviously... I'm, I'm somebody that loves colour, that looks to colour. And 
I did not have a wardrobe for depression, boy. I had to scurry out there thinking, what can I wear? How can I be? <laughs> and learning that actually I just had to be myself and accepting that. So, um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you've already alluded a little bit to what happened when you had your baby, your little boy, Jet. Yeah. But if I could go back a little bit further, I want to know a little bit more about your relationship with writing. Oh, what does writing you. mean to you? Oh, wow. Um, well, I've written since I was a little girl, since I was three years old, knew how to wrap my chubby hand around a pencil. It's um, <laughs> been my kind of the underscore of my life. And it's only been well, we can talk about this later, but in my illness, truly did I realise what a touchstone it is for me. You know, um, when I was ill, I did consider all these great things in life, I'm saying great as in the word huge, religion or addiction, anything huge that kind of people looked for, for an anchor. And I realised that mine is writing. It's been that constant that has come like everywhere with me, like the dregs of my life. <laughs> um, and uh, that's how I have digested and processed what has happened around me little things as a kid from a pet dying or my grandma dying my parents breaking up I would express it in that way through writing my spelling and grammar has never been strong and I always thought that to be a writer you kind of had to have incredible spelling grammar be an academic be best friends with Stephen Fry um and I identified writing as um you had to be studious and extremely smart maybe you've gone to Cambridge and certainly help if you're if you're a dead man not on the live girl and so um I, I <laughs> started just thinking about that it's a brilliant way to start off <laughs> so I never really I mean we talked about the Brit school earlier didn't we yeah. and so the Brit school really was a place um that I thought oh maybe I can do this there is a gap in the market for uh female writers female stories um and why not me it has to be somebody why not me but I started learning the work off by heart because of my spelling and grammar I thought I would never get on you mean um, your own work yeah so I did um would do performance poetry storytelling one looking back as a children's author was now a massive mistake because it was a character who is a, a Rolf Harris obsessive which now I'm like oh for okay. um but it was a character <laughs> and um got published when I was about 20 with Harper Collins um a handwritten I didn't even own a laptop or a computer it was a handwritten book that uh, every day a motorbike would come and pick up the pages and it was sort of hand-stitched wow. together like that. And that book, you know, I kind of almost thought that was going to be it. And I'm still, you know, I try not to get too comfy in this job because I appreciate how privileged we are to be making art for our career. It shouldn't be that way because everyone should have the arts accessible to them, but it is a privilege. And um, But I'm always you know, every kind of month I go, okay, maybe this is going to be the last one. But I just, I, I believe that whatever I was was doing with my life I would be telling stories I would be compelled to write about it so my imagination has always been there until I suppose it turned on me and then I could no longer access it I found like a, my brain had almost betrayed me and I had to realign with it get to know it again and that's what happened yeah that's where I'm at now we're in a full-blown romance again because <laughs> <laughs> how many books have you written now so I love you I love you I love you will yeah be I in... think it's 22 22 books including good whistle sorry including children's but I, I was very it. impressed Ooh, <laughs> I can't do it I can't whistle that's so I'm like wow I love it when people put their two fingers in you know I can't really do that. honk no. um god Sophie um <laughs> uh 22 but it's including children's books poetry books and um and each 
each one, you know, is a baby to me. I feel that sounds like a lot. And then I see Jacqueline Wilson and she's like, I'm on 110. And I'm like, what? And and she will speak about every single book with such love. You know, she'll know yeah. all the characters. A, a child, there's always some kid that will put their hand up, some nine-year-old girl who'll be like, what about? And say this name that you think is going to throw her and she'll know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> and I've got a lot of respect for that because they are like your, your babies, you know. Yeah. As you know, with music, we've got our kids but we've got our art which is also pushing out our babies as well our creations yeah and as you say that touchstone and feeling like you and actually it's interesting you said you had this idea of what a writer would look like but actually you know the way that people used to people like homer that was all written to be memorized and said aloud that's actually how the birth of that sort of storytelling people a lot of people couldn't read so it was yeah. that it actually was exchanging stories that was how it was what it was all about so this is it. I, I visit a lot of schools and the amount of kids that are like oh i don't like reading or or writing but they'll love they'll buy into adverts they'll love music they'll love gaming and yeah. I'm like, don't you realise all of this have massive constructs of writing behind it where authors have, and big writing rooms, you know, you like stra- um, Stranger Things or Squid Games. Do you not think huge writing teams create this stuff? Yeah. That's why it's such an exciting job. And it is, as you say, the truth of it is conversation and communication. Absolutely. I was actually talking about that with my 14-year-old the other night. We were talking about our favourite books and our favourite films. And I was saying, you know, art is basically storytelling. Like, if you haven't got that way of to communicate things and to try and, you know, find what relates, create a shared experience, or to step into someone's life, an experience you didn't have and feel like you did. Totally. And I have to say, your writing is amazing. I've read What Have I Done Twice now, and both times I'm blown away by the way you take me by the hand into your experience. So why don't we talk a little bit about what happened when you had your first baby? Yeah. Yeah. Which um, makes me want to give you a hug. As we can, as I we... was already, uh, just for everyone to lis- listening, I was already crying the second I stepped in Sophie's kitchen. This is the kind of house this place is. <laughs> so there might be tears. Emotionally porous Exactly, house. yes. Um, okay, so I've never experienced poor mental health before. Obviously, I've had going back to school dread sort of thing and worry, anxiety, but healthy, I would say, not unhealthy. And... Um, I had a, a healthy pregnancy, no reason to be worried. Two weeks overdue. This is my firstborn. I was with the love of my life. Like everything was kind of as it should be. And um, went in to get induced. And I just ended up not coming out for over a week. I had a very traumatic labour. Um, they basically detected, they think I might have had undiagnosed preeclampsia. But what had essentially happened is where Jet was cooking nicely in the womb. I mean, I was showing small and uns- you know what it's like being pregnant. People love to give you unsolicited advice, don't they? Yes, they really do. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I yeah. thought I was going to give birth to this kind of prized pumpkin, but I was showing small. I kind of reassured myself he was sort of hiding in my rib cage or something. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. Um, if anything, looking back, I think I was actually getting smaller. So what was happening was the placenta had failed. So he was essentially starving inside me. And when he came out, his skin was like stretchy where he'd had nutrients and then he'd lost it. Mm. Um, so I called, there was meconium. I had to have epidural, that massive needle in your spine, all this stuff. Bearing in mind, I have not only been to the hospital before for a broken wrist when I was 11 years old. So suddenly panic stations, doctors, you know, they say, don't worry about all these midwives coming in. It's when you see a doctor. Oh, I had doctors, nurses, midwives, everything. Um, It was only what I could 
describe as hell, then I realised, no, hell hadn't even begun. Um, so one of the things I learned from this, because there's got to be a silver lining, is what a passenger I was, just going to the nurses and doctors, have you got a boyfriend? Have you eaten? Oh, are you hungry? Kind of neglecting myself and not having any autonomy. Well, that was what you were asking them. Yeah, you were checking they'd Checking eaten. in them, going, have you had enough to drink? Completely no agency over myself or care mm. because I trusted them. Yes, quite rightly. How and do it's all I know? unknown as well. And being it's a patient and, it, and in a very medicalized situation, especially when you've got no experience of hospital, it's like, oh, I don't. I just sort of imagine everything is very smooth here. Everybody knows what they're doing. I think you don't. I'd never really been to hospital before I had a baby either, and I actually did have preeclampsia with my first two, so I had them early. And I had this vision of hospital that is very sort of slick, almost people who were sort of superhuman. And then you realise, I know these people are extraordinary, but they've trained, they've learned their stuff, and sometimes things slip through the net or people don't know how to talk to you. And being very good at, you know, how you do something medically might not mean you're as good at how to talk to a patient or explain what's going on with them. Totally. Yeah. And they're just human. Yeah, just humans. And and we know as well, they're understaffed, they're overworked. Mm -hmm. But you also know when you hear sirens and, and you like to see a kind of relaxed look on a midwife's face, the same you want to see an air stewardess in turbulence on an aeroplane, you want to see them look chilled. Yes. Like this happens all the time. You don't want to see them be panicked. Yeah. One of them, I, I, I'd heard my midwife, my home midwife was really loving and kind and reassuring and she had said to me before you know when you get there if you're not vibing with the she probably didn't say vibing obviously she didn't she said um it's okay not to vibe with your midwife ask for a different one but it's like in the moment how yeah. are you going to be a nuisance and go i'm so sorry not really vibing with this midwife yeah. can you do you know what i mean you're also just going to get on with you, it like, uh... don't want to hurt anyone's yeah, feelings totally, yeah. like and also I'm, my fanny is out right now <laughs> and my life is at risk and so is my child mm. can you just make this smooth as possible and as you say, maybe someone who isn't pleasant might be really great at delivering a baby yeah. and keeping you alive. Anyway, I had to have my waters manually broken with, with like a Victorian spike that when, when I saw the size of it, nothing could prepare me for it. It was like something from horrible histories. Mm. And it scraped all of Jet's head. So the waters had apparently already broken. So he came out with all these gashes on his head I'm just there like, have I failed? What have I done wrong? Um, not being able to, I'm pooing all over the place. The poo just did not stop. Cut to emergency cesarean. Um, as I said, never had an operation before. So even that was something. And there was me going, well done everybody at the end. <laughs> Wheeled round to the maternity ward. What made me think now I'd be able to just have a kind of Sprite and chill? Um, Obviously, I had this baby that was underweight that wanted yeah. to feed nonstop. As listeners might know, if you've had an emergency cesarean, or anyway, the milk can take a while to come in. Yeah. So I had nothing to feed my baby, you know. That yeah. already, again, compounding, you know, you're a failure, you can't do this. Yeah. So Hugo's there with this thing, this little pipette trying to get the colostrum out. Um, and, yeah, then we were on this ward, this maternity ward. Have you been to a maternity ward yes. before? Yeah, well, I had my first two, like, you know, I had emergency cesareans and then I got taken I'm to the sorry, place yes. where it's like, this is where we put you with things that you haven't gone exactly as you planned. <laughs> and you're sort I'm of trying to eavesdrop, that. not trying to eavesdrop, that's the wrong thing. You can't help but eavesdrop, actually. These paper-thin little oh. curtain walls. And you're sort of trying to work out the stories going on behind each one. And there's a weird air there because it's, I mean, I didn't have my baby with me. Uh, he was taken off. So you got sorry. these things happen, but he it's that thing of like, this isn't quite how I thought it would be. 
I'm, I've just had my baby, but he's not here. What do I... How does this work out now? This is not... The cha- I didn't read this chapter in my yeah. book. This is not how the script goes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly... Sounds like... Uh, when you said weird air, that's mm. what I can really relate to. Um, and, and kind of a maternal whale song of pain where people are like... You know, we had people opposite us who had twins. One of them didn't make it. The other one had the same scars that I had across their head. So we're there comparing these gashes in our child's head. It's not like how you see in the movies, this no. golden hour where you're meant to be having skin to skin and instantly falling in love. Exactly. This is terror, pain, fright, neglect, abandonment. Um, the basic instincts of being able to use the bathroom or fall asleep seem like something as far off as, you know, getting on an aeroplane and going to another country and being in the Maldives. It's like, yeah. this is far out of my reach. Yeah. You're not allowed to fall asleep with the baby on your chest because you're on like a high bed and it's a yeah. floor. But the baby wants to be with you all the time and you've got nothing to feed the baby. And, oh, ironically, Catch-22, the only way to get the milk working is to put the baby on the teat. Yeah. So you're just there like, okay, what do I actually do? So I don't think I slept for days, days and days. And I'm not just exaggerating. You no, don't no. really sleep before you give birth anyway because you're counting down. You know your life's about to change. You're scared, you're apprehensive. Your back's hurting, all these things. So, yeah, I became, I'm vegetarian, but I was ripping apart chicken, you know, like a Viking and glugging water from the jug, like, with my hands and just desperate to get out there. The temperature is so hot. Mm -hmm. Um, And a rare sign of the epidural is that I wanted to scratch. So I was scratched. Did you? Crazy itching. Crazy. Crazy. People don't tell you about that bit enough. Oh, and don't forget the signs of epidural. It's like, you might die. You might this. You might, like, so, yeah, I was scratching till I was bleeding. So anyway, we came, I felt like I'd been vacuum packed in a jungle or something. I was like, I need to get out of here. And we finally did. Um, I think what was scary about that moment as well was realising that Jet and I were patients in our own right. So I was discharged, but he wasn't. So that was like, oh, I'm, he's not actually just mine. He belongs to the world or society, which is just strange. It made me realise of like how the value of him and how special he was. And that I'd nearly murdered him in my mind, you know, that doubt by not being able to maybe grow him properly. All these moments of failure, I suppose. Anyway, taken out, uh, thought home would be like the Walt Disney Castle, everything would calm down. It was February. Outside, there was this wild storm. Madly, it was called, it was actually, it's called Storm Emma. She was called Storm Emma the Storm. Mm. And she was a Great Depression which is just really strange. So in February, when we're used to maybe the beginnings of spring, going into March, all of March, it was like we were trapped in a kind of snow globe. It felt like the glass was all kind of around us and we were encased and there was just a giant was just lobbing us, this snow globe, like knocking us off the shelf and nothing seemed to settle. And my panic, my kind of state of my, I guess the alarm system of my body was just pinging off and firing in all directions. And as I said, I'd never experienced this before. So when we got back, Hugo immediately, my partner, he was incredible the entire time. His tolerance for BS is just ginormous. (laughs) He just fell asleep and I was like, ah, (laughs) what do I do? I need to look out for danger. I need to look out the window. I need to, every ambulance I'm hearing must be for me. I'm hearing racing thoughts. Somebody who obviously doesn't have a child, bought us a six-foot teddy bear as a present. And I'm like, that bear's watching me. There's got CCTV in the camera. And it's just like that kind of paranoia edge that first. I mean, I've never done a drug, but 
it, I've, I've, many of my friends have and I've sat with them in those moments where they might say something and you can laugh it off or you know it isn't and you kind of say, oh, what if, or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But this was like, I didn't have that kind of reins of intelligence to pull this back and say, no, Laura, this is this. Maybe at this point I still did, but it, it, then it spiralled with the lack of sleep and um, worry for Jet. I didn't feel this bond um, and I didn't know how I was ever going to get better. I honestly believe there was like a, a before version of me and an after version of me in what had felt like hours and I couldn't see how the gap had got so lost. Yeah. So I did the right thing and I asked for help. I was charging on my little merry way down to the GP every day. There was snow on the ground. It was so strange. It was coming into March and I was like, this just doesn't feel right. Telling them how I was going through, what I was going through, of course, it was um, severe adjustment disorder, um, baby blues, PTSD, all these things are thrown at me, but I couldn't, I was trying the best to find the language I could, but I was like, no, this is something else. Like, I feel like I've done something extremely wrong, yeah. which is why the book's called like a, What Have I Done. Like a dread sort of sat big on time, your chest. Big time dread. And I can't get to the point of it. And, and a feeling of foreboding, like ugh. something horrendous is about to happen. Oh, foreboding. <laughs> 100% yes and she said do you feel like you're gonna gonna maybe turn around no could you hear maybe a voice behind you and you could turn around and like the voice isn't there and I was like I said I remember saying no that sounds mad but that was very close to kind of what I could imagine happening and it's like the makings of a horror film mm. I kind of get home and I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm like all you did was have a baby what we see in the movies is what you see in Catastrophe that programme on TV and it's motherland it's so normalised it's domestic and boring it's boring why are you having this crazy kind of experience like a kind of horror yeah a major horror movie um, and then then I became extremely suicidal on many different levels mostly because who could live like that for a long time yeah also because I was terrified of what my psychosis wanted me to do. I should probably say the illness I was going through is called postpartum psychosis, mm. but I mean, I wasn't diagnosed yet at this point. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Um, so I was terrified of what I was going to do, so I guess I was suicidal, which actually I'm proud of myself for this bit, was thinking this is going to be really messy and horrible and probably end badly, so... Let's nip it in the bud in a way that I had control over. Um, and then the other one was a storyline because if you're in psychosis, often it can be a narrative or a storyline that you believe is real and you kind of have to follow the steps of that, which yeah. is just, as a storyteller, probably does really doesn't help. Um, so it was a com combination of those things and cut to on my first Mother's Day, waking up in a psychiatric ward, separated from Jet um, in general psych. I just remember waking up and... Um, seeing somebody, an eyeball that I didn't recognise watching me in this kind of strange travel lodge type room, um, thinking, oh my God, this is rock bottom. This is actually rock bottom, but also a sense of relief. Like now, because the only thing worse than mental illness is pretending that you're not mentally ill. Yeah. Holding it together. So it was like, okay, I'm here now. I just remember crawling across the floor to get 
my breakfast and that was the the end of that phase but the beginning of a whole new thing um in hospital yes and recovery but I suppose also what you're talking about is your real eye of the storm obviously the concentric circles are Hugo and your baby and your family and everybody around you yeah and um I mean there's a bit where you said oh I if I'd have been able to I could have pulled myself back when I was thinking what was you were talking about when you're saying you could have oh yeah tried to normalize you know the big bear not having yeah. a camera but yeah. actually it's very obvious you're in the grip of something that actually was not much bigger than you being able to sort of choose a different option and it would have you know this is this was the spiral of this started from the chemistry of giving birth totally and it's chemistry. one and yeah it, but it's extraordinary the, the neurology does does change it affect, it changes your brain the primary care is brain, you know brain mapping changes um birth does it too it's like there's loads of things that happen mm. in the process of bringing a new person into the world and postpartum psychosis as i understand it affects like one or two women in a thousand. So I'm laughing. I'm so impressed by your research. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm interested in it for a lot of reasons. I think what it is, what's very powerful about the whole story of it in your in your writing, is that with a lot of mental health things, you don't feel that far away from what you experienced at so many points in becoming a new mum. Yeah, like the sleep deprivation. Um, I mean, that's literally used as torture, you know, the way it affects your brain. Yeah. A traumatic birth, an underweight baby, yep. feeding around the clock. Yeah. The pressure of what's expected as being a new parent and yep. your ability to nail it. Um, what depression feels like. There's sort of loads of stages of it that are really familiar. So I don't, I feel like it's, you know, like a lot of these things, the line of where it crosses into something darker, it's probably closer to most of us than we realise for a lot of things about loads of ways that we keep ourselves totally. feeling on the right side of sane. Well, what's so lovely about what you just said is you said it wasn't, you know, you couldn't have done that. You took away the blame because that's something I didn't know about. And it and the people around you, as you said, it is getting better, these conversations, but I had nobody saying to me, this is not your fault. This is chemical. Yeah. This is a medical issue. This is a medical emergency. Yeah. This is not something you can try. Uh, somebody tried to say to me, I don't want to, you know, I'm not prescribing blame to the NHS, but one of them said to me, well, you spiraled yourself there. Why don't you just unspiral back? And I was like, <laughs> Whoa. because then it puts all the blame on me and my shoulders like if I unspiral myself back then I can be a good mum that's like, an extraordinarily isn't it and um, this is someone thing to who say. is intelligent and young and creative and you know I just thought wow um, and those things just only make you realise if I didn't have family support you know all this around me quite how isolating mental illness is it's seen that we're the scary ones we're the one that's scared yeah, petrified. Actually. Petrified because we're so isolated. So for somebody to then put the blame on us, you spiraled yourself there, spiral yourself back. That's just impossible. That yeah. is impossible. So I really love what you said there. And a, a good doctor, my my, uh, one of my friends the other day said that they had a meeting with a doctor who said we all have the we're all on the spectrum of all of these things. You know, mm. it's such a vast kaleidoscopic spectrum. Yeah. It's not just you have this, you have this, you have that. It's the problem with labelling. We've all been close to the edge before. Exactly. Compounded by lack of sleep, as you say, stress, an emergency, whatever. Why does it feel... You know, I remember being in the psychiatric ward thinking, 
oh shit, what made me think I didn't belong in a place like this? Yeah. What, how silly me for thinking that's mentally ill people. I'm one of the ones that untouched. Like that's like saying that you're never going to an- end up in A&E. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose um, we have, we, you know, things have come on a long way in our relationship with talking about mental illness, but we also have a sort of um, a light approach to certain aspects of depression that can be, um, you know, little messages people put on Instagram. And obviously there's a lot to be said for keeping check on yourself in the here and now and making sure you voice things and keeping that. But the depression that I've witnessed in people when they've really gone into something very heavy cannot be touched by a phrase that they read online or something like that. What we're talking about is like other. It's like a whole other section. Yeah. And I, I want to really stress as well that what you experienced as is, yeah, it's a medical emergency. It's get yourself to A and E, hundred percent. You know, and it's very, very serious, hundred percent. And yet yeah. we're told, oh, just ride it out. It's like you know yourself. I always say, treat these things. You know, especially in new moms, treat it like unattended luggage at a station. You know, it could be nothing, but treat it like it's something dangerous. Treat it like worst case scenario. If you don't, if you don't trust the professional you're talking to, get a second opinion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's just so vital to voice it. And it does feel from, you know, I've heard uh, the podcast you did with Hugo where you both Aww, spoke about it, thank which you. is a lovely conversation. And I bet quite good for you to have had that space to actually really do that. Because sometimes yeah. you don't have every conversation in that really careful way. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it through over so much. You know, I, I wasn't, one of the biggest things was not being admitted to mater, uh, mother and baby unit because that would have maybe it was always something that I go through like would that have changed things and so sorry explain to me what do you mean by that because I'm not so um many uh, people that have the illness I was gonna say mothers but I don't want to why I suppose it is mothers many new mums that have postnatal depression or postpartum psychosis are admitted Mm. to a mother and baby unit meaning that their baby can be with them oh I see and nurses take care of the baby day to day but I was admitted to general psych so Suddenly waking up, thinking what on, earth, what on earth's gone wrong with me, sat next to people with alcoholism, addiction, eating disorders, schizophrenia. I, I mean, it was just a total... That just made me feel like I was in prison or in hell. Yeah. Like, what on earth is this? Um, strange waiting room, purgatory of life. Yes. And then, me, you know, I, I was also thinking, well, you're not bleeding on top of all of this because you bleed, don't you, after you've yeah. had a baby? I was literally looking at them like I was at school, like, "Mm, yeah, but has that happened to you? And leaking on my chair, you know, like um, in the group circles. And that's kind of the area where I feel Hugo and I like really had to go talk all that through, like the decisions to keep me and Jet apart. But I'm so glad because I didn't want him to be in a place like that. You know, I didn't want him to grow up and see me there. Um, I suppose the only thing with that as well, it's that means that for you, it was almost like your pregnancy was a sort of other thing you'd experienced because now you were dealing with your mental health. Oh, totally. But you're actually a really new mum. I mean, how Jet was like I was, four or five weeks, yeah, right? Yeah, he Tiny. was two weeks old, yeah, when I was there. I know. So people will be like, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot you just had a baby. We just thought we were treating you for how <laughs> no, ill you that's are. that's it. Yeah. That's it. I'm so glad you're saying that. I mean, I did this uh, poetry workshop for, um, I work really closely with Action on Postpartum Psychosis, the organisation. They're incredible. Many of them have experienced it. And um, 
one of them wrote this amazing piece, which I've, it's so nuanced, but I was like, yes, you'd only write this if you'd had that, which is the description of, um, it's so sad, the poem just so amazing, but basically pumping your um, breast milk into the, empty into the sink because it's not usable because you've got to taking so much medication that it isn't usable um, in a psychiatric ward with no baby around and what that feels like and especially if you have to have the door open all day long in your ward which I did at that time it is yeah demoralizing and especially when you milk is what is seen as you know even the word milk has this idea of being nectar of the gods and so precious um you can't really get over that and I guess as well, it makes you feel even further away from what you're trying to get back to, which is feeling good about the new chapter of your life that's begun to totally, be your baby. Totally. You're like a million miles away from oh, it. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, when you wrote about it, how did you manage to keep so many that you write about it in such detail? How, were the, how have you got the memories? from it if you were feeling so unlike yourself yeah in those moments some people do forget it all I'm jealous of them sometimes that they people with psychosis manage to have a wipeout like that I mean I'm sure that's terrifying and has its own cons of course it does um but the memory when I went I visited the hospital every single sign saying fire escape every bit of art it was so potent to me. I could see it. It was like I was speeding on a high. I mean, my brain was thumping and working so hard because I believed I was... Um, it's funny because I'm just the opposite of this person, but I believed I had to was about to be a lawyer in a big custody case to win my son back. So obviously I had to do all my research and preparation for that. My brain was working so hard that it would, it would physically thump, you know. My brain had its own pulse. I was speeding, like, how to get out of this place, which is why it's also a carbohydrate hell, because you need to eat, because you're just, like, buzzing on nothing, mania. Um, so I think my, my senses were so overworked, that's why I could remember it all. Um, I've got a good memory anyway, but processing it in this way, writing it down. So, yeah, I, going back to my writing, which you asked at the beginning, which was such a lovely way to, interview the, to open the interview. I've never had it done like that because it <laughs> circles it back in such a nice way. I guess my almost my the pen in my mind was like, come on, write about it, write about it, write about it. And I was having this battle where I was like, I don't trust you anymore. Like, look what you've done to me. You've made me think that I was dying, that I was a psycho killer, that I was going to lose Jet, all these things, that my whole family were against me, all these horrible, dark things. And um, it just started happening bit by bit. And, you know, I was so happy to lose the writing. My number one love, you know, this touchstone I described to you at the beginning, gone. I was like, I will lose all of that. I believed I was going to be, you know, all these these, um, stereotypes, sensationalized stereotypes we see in films, they don't help, you know, the Sylvia Plath and the Jane Eyre in the attic because you believe, oh, that's women and madness, you know, witchcraft, asylums, American horror story, that's where you see yourself very quickly. Hysteria. Mm. Um, I thought, okay, your writing has to be the first to go. You're going to be an apple crumble eating zombie at your mum's house. That's what's going to happen. Um, and then it was like almost teasing, like just see if you can write a couple of lines, step away. And I did a um, a blog piece with Clemmie Telford 
and that went viral overnight and then I the next day I just woke up being like what again what have you done what have I done part two because I feel like or part 1,567,000 because <laughs> I'm now feels like I'm emotionally naked walking down the street everyone in my area knows what I've done what I'm doing I'm a bad mum and so yeah I really tossed you know kind of fought battled with the idea of getting it down on paper I did it all on my phone in the end and sent it off chapter by chapter with jet across my chest and I've only got to this new realization now but I think I was also writing that as um I still didn't truly believe the illness wasn't going to take me so it was like wow. testimony, you know, an account like this was not my fault. This is what happened here. This wasn't because I was too weak or it was my first baby or I couldn't do the nappies and the late nights or whatever. Yeah. I was really sick. Really sick. And went through hell, um, yeah. traumatised. So that was also probably what it was. So how um, old was he when you were writing it then? Six months. <gasps> Golly gosh. So yeah. this, I mean, it's an extraordinary how much experience and trauma you can have in such a short space of time that's very very intense yeah it was intense and um but then getting like you know a comment from you and all these other beautiful women that I look up to and always have admired the work of and them coming back to me saying that they'd read it or even identified with it whatever I can't explain each one is like a stepping stone that you're like oh this is not you know Sophie can have it people and just can slam their makeup on and get on tv and do all these things and they have felt this it's just like whoa we're holding our shit together yeah like we are showing up day after day we're doing it and we're all pretending we're fine and then this conversation opens and it's an explosion. Look at your podcast because people need conversations like this they actually save lives they really do. I really do believe in the the power of yeah conversation and I think also, what I took away from it is when you, you know, there's a, a photograph that you've posted a few times because it sort of becomes like this visual way of like mm. reminding people the significance of what you see can be masking all sorts. And it's a picture of you, it's a night out you had with Hugo where you went for dinner down the road. Yeah. First night out away from Jets, he must have only been a few couple of weeks yeah. old. Yeah. You've got your lipstick on, yeah. you're looking pretty fancy with your champagne, but you're not feeling no. anything like that on the no. inside. And I, I, I did have a touch of depression when I was about 20. Mm. And I remember thinking, it's so easy to fool people that I'm okay. Like, people just don't really seem to notice <laughs> I'm good at that this. I'm clearly not really okay. <gasps> I'm sorry. And I, well, thank you. I mean, it's nothing like your experience, and I'm not trying to say that, I, you know, no, that that's what... But, but just that, that glimmer of, like, the ability to put a, a front on, and you must have been working so hard. But I, I do want to talk about the recovery, because obviously you're not the only one who's experienced this and there might be people out there who are a little bit closer to the eye of the storm. So what does the recovery process look like? How does that work? Um, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because I think the panic stations, the illness is so bombastic and huge. I'm grateful for that now because it was seen like I was having a heart attack of the brain and I just was lying there like a patient, you know. I... It's those people my heart goes out to that have this low-level, like, underscore that maybe years before it's diagnosed. You have every right, and you should be protecting yourself and asking for the help that you need. <clears throat> but in this, in this instance, so obviously the labour was a casserole of nonsense and hell. The, the hospital, the um, psychiatric ward was surreal and scary and frightening and all those things. Obviously a bit lulls too, looking back. 
And yeah, then, there is humour in your book, right? There's humour. I love yeah. the I love the um, <laughs> description of the consultant who looks like he's got tiny hands. And <laughs> he's really funny. He that. had a heart attack as he was getting me off my meds, and I was like, uh, "Sorry, before you, I know you're having a heart attack, sorry, but before you go, could you just help me?" With, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I understand that you're like dying, but really, please help me. <laughs> he was amazing. And he humour is what helps, you know, throwing these things into the light. Laughter physically relaxes me. Like, I feel more relaxed when I laugh, you know, we yeah. all do. Um, that's Hannah Gadsby, isn't it? And Netflix, where she, that comedy thing, where you can handle trauma in that way. Um, mm. So, uh, yes, well, first of all, recovery is possible. That's the brilliant thing. The only brilliant thing about postpartum psychosis is it's really treatable. It responds really well to treatment, but you have to act fast. Mm. So is it seen as a medical emergency? But with therapy, medication, basically being a little goody-goody, doing every single thing the doctor tells you to do is kind of yeah, surprisingly the only way out. Yeah. But it is a little bit like a ship sto- uh, a storm, you know, a shipwreck, where you come out and you're like, okay, right, I'm on the island now, but what is left of my life? In my case, thank God, because I was in the... Um, no, thank me, actually, I did it. Of the, in the hospital, I didn't say too many terrible things, but people do. People, they can't help it, they're sick, you know. Yeah. But you might destroy relationships that you think are irreparable. You might say bad, you know, th- hurtful things or act in a hurtful way. Embarrassing, humiliation. And that is something that is hard to get through. I definitely did things that I felt ashamed of because I wasn't myself. Um, But also there's a quietness to recovery that is difficult after such chaos. And a little bit, you feel like people are like, oh, you're still ill. Come on, like TikTok, you know, you feel Mm. like you've kind of used your depression tokens. Yeah. And now you're in debt. And it's like, I'm trying, I'm trying my best. Um, So there are things that I've had to learn on this journey that... I rely on even now in my everyday life, CBT, number one boyfriend, you know, having that in my back pocket has got me out of so many things. Just knowing now to push and pull if I feel exhausted or overworked, I have to rest, not drinking anymore, which has just been going to be three years next week, which is like huge for me. Yeah, congratulations. Oh, thanks. That's very impressive. And these, all these things I wouldn't have got. And having these open conversations with my little boy, he knows I was sick, you know. He keeps calling it a headache, which is slightly offensive considering <laughs> the gravity of the situation. But sure, headache, right, okay. Um, but or he sometimes goes, my head's completely fine. And I'm like, fuck <laughs> yeah. um so but we've got such a bond and hugo as well he's just you know his little bag that used to have his wires and plectrums in was suddenly full of baby milk and wet wipes and muslins like he just did that overnight you know we are so bound because of this so recovery is new things i learned the number one thing i would say is it's so harsh but acceptance just accept this did not go as you expected but lots of things don't. And you can feel very, very, very sorry for yourself, but you will get better. Other stories, shared stories. I just gobbled up books, podcasts of anyone that had gone through anything hard and made it through to the other side, whether that be grief or addiction, whatever. Yeah. People have gone through incredible things. The more we talk about it, just the easier it gets. And also the more you talk, actually you get a bit bored, which is quite magic as well. <laughs> you get bored of it. Um, and, and being kind to yourself, it sounds so like cheesy and obvious but it's about real true self-compassion so removing as soon as I removed shame and guilt which is actually very easy to to remove once you practice it you're like oh this was you know it was an amazing doctor that I met I, I you might have heard me say this before but um 
who he was he's the lead psychi- uh, the lead professor sorry in my illness and bipolar and had all these questions written down as to why me why did this happen to me and he just said it just wasn't your day that's it it wasn't your day see it like you were hit by a car and that just flooded me with relief like oh this wasn't my fault it's just a catastrophe of of chaos that all just happened and didn't work in my favor um and so yeah I hold on because it does work out okay and as you know once the kid starts getting older and smiling and showing a grain of appreciation you find your groove a little bit and it might I don't think I'll ever be the same person that I was before I got unwell but good because there were loads of things about me that were um not not naive or played down mental illness, but just didn't understand it, didn't have the compassion to hold that space. And I'm so proud that now I love life just as hard as I did before, but now I know that their monsters exist and I still love it. I still know there's so much to live for. Oh, I Um, love that very much, the way you phrased that. And I think it's interesting because I suppose for some people, they might experience it, but then, and look, there's no right way to handle any of these things, but... I think the fact that you've sort of made it normalised with your relationship with Jet that this thing happened. I mean, what was the way that you broached that? I mean, presumably this touches on what Grey is about yeah. and how you phrased it and that. So how how did you talk to him about it? What was your way of approaching it? Well, my mum's adopted and she said to me, I said, well, how, when did you find out you were adopted? She went, I don't remember. And she said, but she remembers her granddad saying you should never remember being told something across the kitchen table as a child oh that's a brilliant thing to say god that's Isn't so it? smart you should never have a kind of sit down this is a big right, moment for you so reveal yes and this funny because this does feed it's not funny really painful but it does feed into postpartum psychosis because a lot of people do feel the need when their child is of a certain age to say look your mother have gone through this or whatever and i didn't want to do that you know I wanted Mm. us to just kind of it to be in his understanding of why he's not going to have siblings because I come from big busy bustling annoying family and that's what I wanted and I'm not going to do that because there's 50% chance of me getting it again so I want wanted him to understand but also um I want mental illness you know in my autocorrect on my phone now if I go to type you know spaghetti my phone will go schizophrenia and I'm glad because these words, these powerful, scary words mm. that would have frightened me before. Are you, are you inside? Insomnia? It's mm. like, it makes me be able to use these words. I'm not terrified of them yeah. anymore. They lose their power. I still so, don't recommend schizophrenia bolognese though. Schizophrenic bon- <laughs> bolognese. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it. <laughs> it's so good. Did you get the bipolar? Um, no, I, having this language in my phone in my life and being able to talk to about jet nobody ever came to my school and said this exists yeah this is but it's treatable and these are the tools right here to be able to get better of course they're different for everybody and it's not always as easy for everyone and so much comes into it as you know history and life experience privilege of course it's a big 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 conversation but why were they making me play around with a protractor at school yes we've, I know this, this I've is never like... needed a protractor of you I've never ever no. once needed to act plus x with y with whatever it is on algebra not once no well, I use the calculator on my phone I use google maps I don't need the compass I mean this is a whole other thing and anyone who listens to more than one episode of my podcast knows I get very I rate about the education system and the way things are taught and what's prioritized good the, way the arts are devalued 
Good, in, Sophie. In my next life, I'm coming back to sort it all out. I just want you to know that. I'm here for it. Have a psychotic break. Make your little schizophrenic bolognese and back to it. Honestly, Actually, can I ask you, though, about yeah. language? Because I know you brought it up. People talk a lot about, like, oh, that was crazy, that was mad, that was bonkers. Mm. If you've actually crossed into the world of true, you know, chronic mental health disorder, what is, does any of that change or do you still feel like the, the way we use language in that way is... So glad you asked that. I went to speak at um, the biggest psychiatry congress last week. It was in Liverpool, which was with the doctor that said it wasn't your day. He, he was in conversation with us. Didn't quite know how big it was. War Crocs, massive mistake in an auditorium. And they were all in their suits. I was like, why? And um, I, I use it in my book. I say, I had a baby and then I went mad. I will say the word mad. And that is not even so much about ownership, more because the word unwell just does not cut it. Yeah. Unwell for me sounds like, oh, I've got a bit of a... I'm feeling a bit unwell. Yeah. I'm poorly, um, ill even. It just doesn't do it. And it, all it does is actually, it once again, shroud the shame around, and the uncomfortable Britishness of saying, oh, I think they're ill right now. It's like and that, that kind of glimmer in the eye. mysterious what as well, What do you mean it? they're ill? You know, then a, a mind shoots off. Yeah, yeah if let's someone, not talk about it any more than that, you know. Whereas if someone has cancer, it's like, oh, they have cancer or whatever. But it's also in the recovery process too. So we'll say this person lost their battle with cancer. Um, they didn't lose they didn't lose anything, you know, or this person was fighting for their life. The very word fighting makes us feel like it was us versus them and it was this giant battle. And actually, all it does, for me, people say, you know, you've got to fight this thing, you've got to fight it. It made me feel like I had to have this, like, strong woman armour of protection and my sword at the ready. Yeah. But actually, the opposite. You need to be gooey like chocolate fondue and, and... let yourself trust yourself that you will land be kind be squidgy stop shooting off all the adrenaline systems and cortisol in your body and thinking this is something that it's you versus this monster and that was like a very big lesson for me to learn in language also I it doesn't yeah it just doesn't quite catch what I'm trying to say and if that's the only uh language that has been given to me I don't I don't love mental, but I don't wouldn't love mental anyway because it reminds me of the same people that you uh, say random. Mental's a bit like that, um, but I I do say mad. I went mad, yeah, because that kind of is what it is. And for me, it softens it. People don't know what postpartum psychosis is, and yet again, this is another conversation. Anything postpartum, people always feel like they need to tread very gently. Like, oh, it's to do with babies and kids, or does that mean you're a baby killer? Does that mean you're this or the poor baby, it's always straight away the poor baby. No, the baby's absolutely fine. fine. There's yeah. 110 people around the baby yeah. feeding it, holding yeah. it, changing it, cuddling it, buying presents it doesn't need. Your, um, the original title for the book was going to be The Broken Oven because I felt like everyone had their face peered in at this screen watching this perfect cake rising and rising and rising. And I'd bake the cake and they all went off to eat the cake. And I was just this oven, like, on my own, kind of thrown out on the roadside, just broken and kind of quietly cooling with all my parts broken and rusty that's how I felt and so yeah I'm, I don't mean to offend anybody I need to say that the, the language I use it's my own ownership I don't think you need to worry about offending but it's very much your experience and the words you can use whatever words to describe what happened to you whatever words um, and I want to also give a bit of a shout out to your family and Hugo because they do sound oh, like you were surrounded by amazing. a lot of a lot of very concerned and loving people. Oh, they're amazing. And the doctors, they all said, we knew you'd get better the second you came to the hospital because you had the support. Yeah, that's so vital. And having that, you know, 
having that support around you, family, that my family really did come through for me. And do you feel your relationship with writing is back to... Yes, so I just wrote um, a teen book called You Are a Story, which is a creative writing guide for young people about how to write about difficult stuff and come through the other side, but also how writing is pretty much free and it's available to us all. Yet for some reason, I mean, we obviously need another discussion about this, but writing is seen as an academic subject, English, but it's not, it's an arts, Mm. I believe. And it seems like, oh, that's not my area because I'm not clever enough clever in these speech marks. It's available to everybody. It's like dancing or painting. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, me and writing are very much... It's just my normal inner critic now. Obviously, they're still there. They're not yeah. going anywhere, but that's part of the job, isn't it? Definitely part of the but process. But I am kinder. So when I do a stint, I'm like, it's time to cuddle yourself now, girl. That's good. And eat 100 beige things. That sounds good. And I don't want to sound really creepy, but I, in my like research, I did see that your mum recently met her birth mother for the first time, which she I think did. is... Amazing. Oh my goodness, yes. Gosh, she, dig, she digs deep. <laughs> she digs deep. It's definitely a little Sophia, on the creepy Bexel, side, I'm sorry. You've got all these other jobs into... Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, she did. Personal detective on the She on the did. Uh, and you know what? Um, it has defrosted her so much as a person because I think... I mean, this is a whole other subject, but the uh, I think the adoption is made my mum a kind of lone wolf cockroach, which is what we all love about her. She and seems now, like a really interesting woman. Oh my goodness, I really do have tried to tackle about... I've tried to... T- I don't know if you've ever seen a portrait of a woman on fire, of a lady oh, yes, on fire. Yes. Did you see that? That that woman reminds me of my mum. You can never quite... As soon as you think you've captured her, she'll move out of her position and you've lost all essence of what you just nearly grasped. And even as a child, I felt that. And she's so formidable and inspiring and full of love um, and complicated. She caught a Pokemon on my face as I was giving birth. <laughs> So, a, a Pikachu. I thought I was posing for a picture. Why did I try and do the little smile? And I was just like, you just caught a Pokemon on my face, didn't you? She was like, maybe. She's in, she's in the top 7% Pokemon catchers. Um, so what, yeah, in the UK? Yeah. Maybe even globally. <laughs> should get her on the podcast. So, you should. So, she has, yeah, so that has been really... I, it's Lem Sassay, the poet. He had an amazing book called My Name Is Why about care system... And he said in it, when you find your birth family, you bring war, but you also bring peace. And I feel like my mum has just had just the peace, really, and it's brought her internal peace. It's been really beautiful to see. And my new grandma knits us crochet cushions. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, and we're trying to get her to make us crochet bikinis on order now. Well, that's got to be quicker than doing a cushion. She's up for a cushion. She's definitely doing a bikini. It's got to take like a third of the time. (laughs) That's true. The little thong bikini. (laughs) Um, But it sounds like, and obviously you would never wish going through something traumatic, but when, when something goes unexpected and dramatic... I think with couples and families, it can either kind of disperse things or make you this extra tight unit. Mm. And it sounds like that's what's happened in your home. Yeah, and also, yes, in home life and also uh, in life, you know, you get rejection letters, you get scared about normal life things. When life throws things your way, you're able to say, I have been through pretty much, you know, I have stared suicide in the face and I've made it through yeah and what an achievement uh, that is and none of these things worry me now because I can do that I can do the unthinkable and I'm 
have so much more love and compassion and empathy to give than I ever did. I can only say I have taken much more from this illness than what it took from me and for my family too. So I'm, I'm actually grateful for it. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I am grateful. I think that's pretty magnificent. Oh, thank and there's you. a lot of strength in what you've been through and how you've managed it, but also how you've taken ownership of, of the narrative of it and made it part of your family story, but not something to be fearful of, just the fire you will walk through mm. and now you are. Can I finish by asking you, for your book, Grey... What's something that you've written in there as a, if people are listening and they think, oh, I quite, because I, I know it's not coming out till next year, isn't it? Yeah. So is there something that's like a, a bit of advice for how to talk to kids about depression in there? It's even more abstract than that, but that is such a nice um, question. Well, at the end, it just says, um, my love won't change for you when it's grey. So really the message there is unconditional love. We think sometimes that when we have depression or anxiety or we're, got something on our minds that we're unlovable and not only because the illness is kind of comes with for some stupid reason like weakness and even though you're daily weightlifting an athlete in your mind but also because you feel like you're always going on about it or you're taking time and you're like oh I need to do this and meds and whatever it is it's just knowing that the love is unconditional and remembering that if it's not you it could the very well be the person that's caring for you could one day also fall off track too and understanding this isn't just a personal experience it's universal yeah um it's permission to be yourself really and I think that's what makes it such a lovely bedtime story and having Lauren Child who we know as Charlie and Lola who's yeah. so like colorful and she's now just like been incredibly honest about her own experience and having this idea as you'll know as well being a disco queen that when they're identified with things that are meant to be fun and glittery children's authors the same we're meant to be sparkly and fun and all these things all the time and actually we can't have these fun things unless we also are identifying the sorrow yeah light doesn't come without dark yeah but also child children start to explore dark thoughts really little some more than others and actually i think accepting that that's part of life is a really big part in childhood. Otherwise, you come to fear the parts of your brain that are darker and you start to think, oh, I'm not supposed to be having that thought. That's so true. So I think all the good children's books draw a little bit that darkness in. So it's like, look, that's part of it too. If you've had intrusive thoughts, if you'd had something pop into your head, I mean, I used to get that all the time. Like suddenly a dark thought and I think, oh, that's probably like, I should probably keep that really quiet because probably other people aren't thinking that because childhood it's supposed to be all sweet and exactly. glowy in the middle of it exactly. all but actually accepting the dark corners and then you just can let it float past you you don't have to latch exactly. onto it you're just like oh that's just a thought it's not a fact say it to your mate and they go oh yeah I think about that too yeah and it, then it's talked about and then it's not so scary it's just about dialing down the fear so having Lauren do it has just been but this again is another thing I've got from it to have a, a book coming out of my she's the whole reason I wrote children's books was because of Lauren we studied her in my course and now having a children's book coming out with my dream person it's just like another thing to be like look what I'm here to live for another thing the illness has brought me yeah another thing the illness has brought you but also all the life that was waiting there to be lived that you thought you'd never get to totally yeah that's just there's still so many adventures ahead oh (laughs) oh well cheers to you thank you so much thank you so so much it's been a pleasure pleasure to talk to you FBI need new staff (laughs) 
And I, I probably revealed too much she's about got to the go way to the school. <laughs> she's got to go to do, sort the school education system out first, then she'll pop by my five and put them in their places. I love Googling stuff. I'm terrible for that. I can go down <laughs> somewhere out there, there's information. <laughs> wow what a story see even listening back to it now i'm like that is that is one hell of an experience and it does make me think about the concentric circles as well of when you know an experience like that happens to someone and it affects all the people around them and how worried her other half must have been and her family and her siblings or her sister like just extraordinary but how strong you must feel when you survive it and live to tell the tale so that is is brilliant and um and so yes laura's got her book that she did with lauren child um gray for children to talk about uh, depression and that great area of life so thank you so much to laura uh don't really I feel a bit speechless actually it's funny like I said at the beginning I think it's because I feel like the line sometimes I remember I've had one experience of depression very very long time ago when I was about 20 and I was just so shocked that I always thought the line between good mental health and bad you know feeling in a bad way with your mental health was it was a very long way away from me and then when I got unwell I realized I was walking very close to that line a lot not not because I was in a bad way but because that is just the truth of it, actually. The truth of it is it's easy to step over the line if you don't keep an eye on yourself and do all the things that make you feel good. So um, I hope I hope that conversation has helped some people. And um, please do reach out and talk to someone if you're having any dark thoughts. Please do. It's so important. I know it's oft said and I know it's the biggest hurdle, but it all does get better once people know what you're actually dealing with. So... If that's something you're living with, postpartum or not, just please, please, please talk to someone. Please, please. Anyway, I will leave you remembering it was a happy ending for Laura. And, um, yeah, I am... What else am I dealing with at the moment other than schooly things? Well, I've done my last festival now. I've got some fun extra projects in the diary and I'm starting to write the new album. That's what I'm really excited about. I've got loads of ideas, actually. They're probably all crap. <laughs> but I'm feeling quite G'd up at the moment. Um, I'm not being self-effacing when I say that. It's just like literally the cycle of creativity. You go, oh my God, this is amazing. This is a good idea. Oh, I think this might be the best thing I've ever done. And then you've got to have the bit where the Ferris wheel comes down the other side. And you're like, I've listened to, I've listened to these little voice notes I've put in my phone of like little song noodles. And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure that's the best thing I've ever done. But anyway, don't worry, it's not all down to me. I'm going to work with some amazing collaborators to um, help me edit myself and also to share their, their talent. So it's all going to be all right in the end, promise. And I'm also prepping for the Christmas tour, which I know sounds insane, but my head is filled with what do I want to wear, what do I want to sing, what do I want the stage to look like, what Christmas songs have to be in there. Plus, I've been booking um, more guests because... Uh, we're sort of heading towards the end of this series and I'm also starting the next one. So, all good. Just chugging along. Oh, and continue. I've also been doing loads of throwing out. My charity shop is like, it's not going to know what's hit it when I take all those bin bags down there. I've done loads of clearing out, like Mickey's stuff, because he's four now and he's just suddenly done that thing where he's just shot up. I always find kids' growth is not 
like a little incremental it's suddenly that like go dunk and you'll be like oh you've grown like a foot so i've taken out loads of his small clothing now oh time to move on time to move on but it's okay as i said the wheel turns and i hope you have a good week and whatever you're up to is going all right and there's some good bits in there for you and i will see you next week all right lots of love bye bye